You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santa's Health. Hi there, I'm Patrick Nelson, and I'm a principal at Santa's Health. Maureen Taylor is joining me today for a discussion on COVID-19. Before we get started, I want to quickly note that we are practicing social distancing. Instead of recording in studio on the Burgundy Chairs, we are calling Maureen remotely. I hope you'll forgive us if the quality sounds different than our usual episodes. Now to introduce our guest. Maureen Taylor is a physician assistant specializing in infectious disease at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. She has worked at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre as a PA in emergency medicine and was named PA of the Year by the Canadian Association of Physician Assistants just two years ago. Prior to this, Maureen was an award-winning broadcast journalist for 25 years, including seven years as a health reporter for CBC. Thanks for joining us, Maureen. Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, just to, for those that might not be uh, completely aware of what a PA is, can you tell, uh, tell our listeners what a physician assistant does and what you specialize in, and in particular, what you've been doing more recently at Michael Guerin Hospital and how your job has changed in the last few weeks? Okay, sure. So... What I like to tell people, at least if they know a little bit about the healthcare system, is I describe physician assistants as residents who never go away. So we're not doctors, but we are trained in the medical model like doctors. Obviously, we don't go to school as long and probably don't go as deep. But once we get into practice and we practice in hospitals and family health clinics and we are there in gynecology and in surgery and, and pretty much everywhere, we, we operate like those residents do who are working with the doctor, have some supervision, but still know enough to uh, get in there and help diagnose uh, and uh, order tests and initiate treatments for patients. So physician assistants have been around in, in Canada in the military for decades, but they're, I suppose, some people would say fairly new as far as the civilian population. But I'm one of the first graduates from a civilian physician assistant program. I graduated from McMaster in 2010. So we've been around for a decade now. More recently, I, I did start off as an emergency room physician assistant in a very large hospital. And more recently, I got what I would consider to be my dream physician assistant job five years ago when I became a PA in infectious diseases at a smaller um, still academic hospital, but more, uh, more of a community hospital in Toronto. So I see people in the hospital who have infections or may have infections or who need antibiotics or need to get off antibiotics and all that sort of thing. And I work with three different infectious disease doctors, and it's really a wonderful job. You're a real uh, ambassador for the PA profession. Uh, how has that role in infectious disease changed over the last uh, couple of weeks or maybe the last couple of months? Yeah, it's it's been fascinating and uh, not surprisingly concerning. I'm not going to say frightened because I don't think that we do get frightened by infections because we've always predicted that there would be another worldwide pandemic on the level of a 1918 flu. As you know, in the last couple of weeks, 
more what we've been doing is pandemic planning. So really trying to get our hospital prepared for what we think is coming over the next few weeks. Um, we're trying to flatten that curve in the, in the jargon that's out there right now. And that means having really good systems in place as employees and patients and visitors come into hospital to try to catch people who might be symptomatic with the symptoms of COVID-19 um, so that we don't have them in the hospital spreading the disease unawares, which is what happened with SARS. Um, I don't get that involved in that aspect of things. Um, but while my bosses, as I like to call them, my infectious disease colleagues are very involved with that, I've really had to carry more of the burden as far as looking after the patients who are already in hospital with other types of infections. I will see patients with COVID-19, um, and I don't want to give away too much, but I probably already have. And um, once they're admitted to a hospital, they will become part of my team's uh, care that we're going to do on a daily basis. But what I've also seen, Patrick, to be honest, is a concern about running out of certain equipment. And so the physician I was working with yesterday and I have decided that when we go into a patient's room where we're required to have the gown, the gloves, the mask, the shield, we're going to spell each other off. So I'll go in one day and he'll go in the next and then I'll go in the next. And that way we're not, as we like to call it, you know, wasting equipment that could become uh, in short supply in a matter of weeks, actually. Planning ahead and uh, pre preparing is, uh, is critical to how we'll respond in the next couple of weeks. When we think about, uh, I mean, you've been covering health uh, as a reporter or working in health most of your life. Uh, wh what is your assessment uh, on how government is managing uh, and, and preparing and planning uh, in particular over the last couple of weeks? Mm. Well, as you know, I, I don't mince words, and I, I now that I'm not a journalist anymore, I don't need to hold back when I look at how a government is handling an issue. So that's, that's some freedom for sure. I, I have to say, again, this is different from SARS, because we had some warning that COVID-19 was coming. I mean, from early on in January, we knew that there was a new virus that likely jumped from animals into humans and that it was making people in, in uh, Wuhan and Hubei province very sick and killing them. So government saw that that was happening. And I, I think that there was an attempt to prepare. I, I actually want to give a lot of kudos to the federal government here. I thought, I think we're seeing some strong leadership. I really like the Minister of Health that we have. I think she's very transparent. And of course, as a journalist, that's, that's really what I want to see. And I think that's what Canadians want to see too. We don't just want to have our heads padded and told everything's going to be all right. What we really need from, from government is for them to step up with a plan, and they have to explain how the plan is based on science. And then they have to provide the resources to carry that plan out. Um, provincially, Premier Ford has been uh, carrying the right tone of late. I like the fact he seems concerned. I think he gets it. But my appraisal of how governments are doing is different from maybe my appraisal of how public health officials are doing. So I'm not sure if you want to talk about that as well. I do. But before we go there... 
do you know one of the things that uh, occurs to me as we as we watch what's happening across the country? Uh, there, are different provinces are taking different steps, at different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the criticism you mentioned the federal government. One of the criticisms that we hear sometimes is there should be a consistent approach taken across the country because if you close the schools in Alberta. Uh, well, of course, and, and leave the schools open in BC, for example, uh, we're not seeing that. Uh, that you, you see what I'm getting at. We're not getting the same uh, uh, consistent response. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's been a problem because that confuses Canadians. We know that the way Canada is set up, it's the provinces who have control over health and education. So it is true that they get to make their own decisions. And, and we saw uh, Ontario decide to close schools way ahead of, uh, way ahead, it's a few days, ahead of British Columbia, who sort of waited until the end of March break to make that call. But would it be better if the federal government got all of those leaders together and asked them, could we agree on a a unified approach to all of this in the future? Yes, undoubtedly. And um, I'd like to see that happen. But I can also understand why the federal government might not be able to wave a magic wand and make it happen unless they want to enact some kind of war measures act and things like that. And that's why you're going to see reporters ask Mr. Trudeau a lot about that in the coming days. Um, if we don't get this under control, uh, I think there'll be more pressure on him to do that, but that's a huge deal. And you don't do that lightly. What I think would be better is for all of the provincial ministers of health and their chief medical officers of health to, and I'm sure they're talking to each other, but it would be nice if they could come up with a unified approach so that we don't have to go to something like the War Measures Act. Uh, you mentioned public health. Uh, uh, obviously, there's the uh, chief, the, Can- the Canadian uh, uh, medical officer of health, and there's provincial MOHs across the country. What are your thoughts on how public health is responding? Uh, Less impressed, Um, with the exception of Dr. Bonnie Henry in BC, who also, by the way, is a veteran of SARS. She was here working for Toronto Public Health. She worked with my late husband. She, you know, trained under Dr. Sheila Basra, and she's been doing, I think, a, a very good job. It's not just communication, right? I mean, a lot of people look back at SARS and they think Dr. Sheila Basra and, and and my husband, Don Lowe, were great because they were great communicators. But it wasn't just that. They each knew where their expertise lay and they let the other one take over the decisions and the communications when it wasn't their bailiwick. Um, so I thought that that worked well then. This time, I just don't have the same confidence all the time. For example, our chief medical officer of health in Ontario is still refusing to admit that we have community transmission. Now you may wonder, well, why is that important? It's important because the screening questions we're asking people at the hospital, at least, are, have you traveled anywhere or is someone in your house diagnosed with COVID-19? The travel history is becoming irrelevant. There are transmissions now to people who had no connection to anyone who traveled. And I just don't understand why our public health officials, the the municipal ones are admitting that, but why the provincial ones don't want to admit that. It's a mystery to me. 
and I don't have any inside information about why that is. Well, let's talk about uh, our healthcare workers, the doctors, the nurses, the PAs, of course, the nurse practitioners uh, and others. Uh, you're, you're on the ground. Uh, you're obviously working close with, closely with physicians uh, and others. Uh, is the support there that they need? I mean, we're uh, social media. There's lots of applause happening uh, in the streets in the evenings. People are banging pots, and uh, you know that's that's got to be uh, uh, welcoming for those healthcare workers. But when we think about uh, PPEs and and those things in the hospital and the long-term care home, do you think that they're uh, are feeling? healthcare workers are feeling like they're they have what they need well you know we're not a homogenous group of people even within the profession right so i have to be careful not to generalize um i think that we all would feel better if we knew that our provincial and federal governments had a supply of everything from gowns gloves surgical masks face shields and and yes n95 masks if we knew that there was going to be an unlimited supply of those that we would feel better. Um, What I notice in my hospital, we have, and the guy is my boss, uh, Dr. Powis, he's the head of infection prevention and control. And he'll tell you that he has lost sleep over this issue of who needs to wear what type of equipment. We have to look at the evidence that we have out of China, uh, Singapore, Uh, Taiwan and uh, of course Italy now and and that's the evidence that we have to base decisions on and right now there's no evidence that this is an airborne virus unless you're doing a a type of um, procedure that is going to stir the virus up out of the lungs and aerosolize it like an intubation and so based on that I think our hospital has tried to do a very good job of reassuring everybody that we're going to put the appropriate equipment outside the patient's door for you. And that won't be an N95 mask unless you're going to be doing those kinds of procedures. I, people are split. I, I'm fine with that. I believe in him. I believe in the science. I believe the experts. But I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm looking around in the hallway and I'm seeing some cleaners, some nurses, some maybe PA, some physicians wearing equipment that they don't need and one doctor i work with went up to a physician who was wearing the full face shield and mask just walking around the hallway not seeing patients and said every time you put that on you're denying it from me in the future when i may have to go in and take care of a patient with covid19 it it really it got that physician's attention and he hasn't done it again so let's think about, uh, I, I want to ask you, you were a reporter uh, with CBC for 25 years. Uh, is the media doing its part? And is there a big difference in, in how things have changed over the last 20 years or so? Well, of course, the biggest difference. So SARS was the story of my journalism career. There was nothing like that. And I was on that story for the CBC exclusively for three months straight. Um, at that time, social media wasn't really a thing. And so I had to trot down to the media briefings with a camera person every day and, you know, tape the whole thing and then look for clips and I'd ask questions. And, and, and now I'm looking at the way it's being covered and, and it's entirely different with social media. Nobody's waiting until the news comes on at six o'clock at night to see what happened that day. It's all coming across our Twitter feed. Um, I don't 
follow idiots on Twitter. So oh. although I hear there's a lot of misinformation out there, believe me, I, I don't even click those things on. They just go by in my feed and I don't pay attention. And I really think that there's some really good quality journalism going on, not just in Canada, but I think for the most part, um, the the big newspapers in the United States, the Washington Post, the New York Times. And by the way, this has all been, uh, the paywalls are taken down. So it's all free um, to, to um, read right now. So they've been doing, I think, a very good job. But, but that doesn't mean everyone is is reading the same things I'm reading and following the same feeds I'm, I just had a nephew call me today and, and we were talking about, is he safe at work? And I said, look, this thing is an airborne. And he said, Oh no, it is airborne. I saw it. And I said, what did you read beyond the headline? Mm. And he said, well, I didn't. And I went, yeah. So Mm -hmm. you've got to read the context headlines alone are not going to inform you. Um, but social, you know, on a different note, not just as a journalist, but as somebody who's always wanted to have access to uh, to the, the latest in medical literature, I think Twitter has been a game changer. And all of the COVID-19 studies are being published, some of them almost pre-published, almost too quickly, uh, without a paywall on them as well. So scientists are sharing this information all over the world. And, and I just... it's really heartening to me that we're getting this information so quickly and it's so necessary. So, uh, you know, I want to get a little bit personal with you, Maureen. Uh, You mentioned your your late husband, uh, Dr. Don Lowe. Uh, He was obviously an an integral part of Ontario's response to SARS in 2003. Uh, When you think about how things were then and you compare it to today, uh, is there any similarities, differences uh, from 17 years ago? Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, that we have to remember that Don didn't work for government when SARS hit, and he didn't work for public health. He was the chief of microbiology at a downtown Toronto hospital, and he, because there had been such a such devastating cuts to public health in the years prior to SARS, especially cuts to the public health lab, Don was asked to come on board and help at those news conferences because he was, you know, the scientist who could maybe understand what this thing was. We didn't even know at first if it was a virus or bacteria. Um, And then journalists just started to really admire his, you know, no, can I say this, no bullshit approach to everything compared to the way the bureaucrats were coming out and talking to us that I think Tony Clement said this in, in the Naylor report and the Archie Campbell, Campbell reports later. He said, if we didn't provide Don Lowe, they would have beaten down the doors at Mount Sinai demanding Don Lowe. Um, and he would, mm-hmm. he liked that, right? I, I won't lie. He, he <laughs> liked the attention. He felt SARS also was a game changer in his career. It changed his life because as a result of SARS, the two of us became involved and eventually married. And we had just a wonderful life until his death from cancer in 2013. I know if I did believe in an afterlife, he's somewhere really cursing that he can't be involved this time. Um, I don't think he'd have the same role. He wouldn't be brought into public health. But I do know 
that the journalists would find him anyway. And even at the age of, he would be 75, I think he'd still be one of the sharpest people out there commenting on this. And I've had more than a few people reach out to me and say how much they wish he was around. Yeah, I think uh, that's a a sentiment shared by uh, many of us. And maybe uh, leads me to my last question. Do you know, when we think about uh, Don or Dr. Lowe, um, he really left his mark uh, on the province and perhaps the country. Uh, he was he was one of the heroes, one of the bright lights coming out of SARS, uh, along with prob- many others, probably Dr. Besserer, as you mentioned. Uh, do you see uh, anybody uh, that's uh, that's shining through a little bit more than others uh, in the early days uh, of responding to COVID-19? Well, of course, I, I will yet say again that I, I think uh, Dr. Henry in BC is, is definitely a shining light. And, you know, we don't just have to look to for heroes at the media briefings. One thing that um, is, is good in, in this is that other infectious disease experts, microbiologists, epidemiologists, and oh my gosh, can we tip a hat to the the people who do the math modeling in, in infectious disease epidemiology, mm-hmm. like Dr. David Fisman at the U of T, um, they are our heroes. And uh, Dr. Fisman has been so good about helping us look at how bending the curve might change the outcome in Canada. And, and I think all of that is just so informative and really hitting a nerve with people to make them sit up and pay attention. But overall, let me just uh, hats off to Don's previous colleague, Dr. Allison McGeer, who you're not seeing in a, an official role, perhaps, but is out there on TV and radio. And to me, she is, as you know, an international expert in infectious disease and epidemiology, the World Health Organization reached out to Dr. McGeer to help them with the MERS outbreak in um, in Saudi Arabia, as well as Ebola. And I, I'm almost wondering if we're not using her enough. Um, she's very busy now setting up some studies and clinical trials, and she still is is just a super doyen when it comes to uh, COVID-19 and other infectious diseases. So uh, those are just to name a few. There are many more. You know what, uh, Maureen, I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. I want to thank you for your um, sharing your uh, perspective as a former journalist, as a physician assistant, but also uh, with your experiences with your late husband and, and so on. Uh, listen, we wish you well uh, in the coming weeks, uh, and uh, perhaps we can have you back uh, sometime soon uh, to share uh, an update on what's happening out there. I would love that. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at Santas Health. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs. Thank you.